Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Boyle. Thank you. Welcome to Grand Rounds. I hope everybody experienced the Culinary Medicine Institute, Culinary Medicine Program. Breakfast, breakfast is, is courtesy of the Culinary Medicine Program, of which our Grand Round speaker is the director, and um, I understand the granola is also our speaker's recipe. So um, welcome to Grand Rounds in May, May 3rd, 2017. And... Um, uh, a few announcements. Um, I, just a reminder, I've seen some new folks in the audience, and out of respect for our speakers, we prefer that computers stay closed during Grand Rounds. Um, if you have work to do, we understand that you can stream the Grand Rounds from your office, but um, if you're in the room, please be fully in the room. Um, uh, another announcement is I want to apologize for those who have been trying to track our, our Monday faculty meeting schedules. I have moved the M&M session at least six times, it seems, among two different dates. We will have M&M in our usual uh, second Monday slot next Monday at noon, um, so our house staff can join us, and we will have a session uh, the following week on uh, clinical documentation improvement. So apologies to the speakers who I disrupted their lives um, trying to avoid PAS, which won't take all of the faculty out to San Francisco. Fortunately, people will still be here um, doing good work. It's celebration season. I wrote in a recent Chad Chatter about it, a visit that we had from the New England. We're very proud to host the New England region of the Solutions for Patient Safety of the Children's Hospital Association last Friday. And in addition to, of course, appreciating our natural setting and our beautiful facility, the attendees from our sister children's hospitals really made significant comments about the activities in our uh, um, in our SIM Center, our Patient Safety Training Center, as well as some of the initiatives we have around um, babies with neonatal abstinence. So we, we showed ourselves proud, uh, as, as everybody did when we had visitors from Irving Oil come down from Canada earlier in the week. So I want to reiterate those, those um, great days. And we are um, celebrating Nurses Week next week, National Nurses Week. I will not be here on Wednesday for Grand Rounds, uh, so I want to wish uh, the nurses a wonderful week. But we are celebrating early today up on the ambulatory practice on the sixth floor with a, a special luncheon in honor of our nurses. So take every advantage in the next week to, to thank the um, important caregivers for our kids who really um, do so much to advance what, what we can all do together. So lots of good going on. We're up to some good. Uh, Auden is uh, no stranger to us, although there's a little bit of a stranger to our podium. She presents nationally. We've really worked hard. Thank you, uh, Kathy and um, Jolene, to finally get her here. And Dr. McClure is um, really, in some ways, the Dartmouth Green uh, poster child. After receiving a bachelor's degree in biology at Bowdoin College and additional training in environmental biology in Kenya and the Himalayas, um, uh, Auden took a detour as the grand chef at La Varenne in Ecole de Cuisine Paris, France, is actually truly a certified chef, um, but came back and received pre-back or pre-medical post-back training and started her Dartmouth journey at Dartmouth Medical School. 
residency here at CHAD, an MPH degree from the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice, uh, residency training and certification both in pediatrics from the American Board of Pediatrics, but also the American Board of Preventive Medicine through the Leadership Preventive Medicine Residency, and most recently certified for the American Board of Obesity Medicine, where her current clinical practice is focused. As I mentioned, she is a co-director for our Lipid and Weight Management Program uh, and associate director for the Weight and Wellness Center here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the director of the Culinary Medicine Program. So uh, a homegrown assistant professor of pediatrics at Geisel. Um, be nice to get an update in 53 minutes on prevention and management of pediatric obesity. <laughs> Good luck, Auden. Okay, 53 minutes if I talk quickly. So can everyone hear me? Okay, great. So I'm going to talk today about um, prevention and management of pediatric obesity. I have no financial relationships, conflicts of interest, and not talking about off-label use of anything. So our objectives today, we're going to talk a little bit about the definition of obesity, um, AAP pediatric obesity algorithm. So going through the new updates there, management of comorbidities, a little bit about our Chad Living Healthy program, and then how we're measuring success. So how are we making sure all of this is working? So as we know, obesity is defined as excess body fat or adipose tissue, and high BMI for age correlates both with adiposity and with increased cardiovascular risk. And this is particularly true of central obesity because we know that visceral fat is more metabolically active, so adipose tissue tends to... Um, create a lot of free fatty acids and inflammation in the circulation, leading to insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and metabolic syndrome. So again, while BMI is not a perfect march marker, it's sort of the best we have at the moment for screening. It's not diagnostic. So when people ask a lot of questions about BMI, in fact, in 85th to 95th percentile, about 30% of kids can be considered normal, especially if they're doing a lot of sports, if they're physically active. And so it's not perfect, but it's great for screening. It's more accurate in the higher BMI percentiles. Louder? Better? Better? Keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, so looking at this chart here, we can see that overweight's categorized as 85th to 94th percentile, and obesity is greater than or equal to the 95th percentile. In 2007, they added a category of um, severe obesity with the new AAP um, expert panel report, um, recognizing that there, more, there are more kids above the 95th percentile with significant obesity, helping us to better track those. There's two new additional guidelines that are not yet fully used in clinical practice, but just sort of making everyone aware, and that's the percent above the 95th percentile. And if you're 120th percent above the 95th percentile or 1.2 times the 95th percentile, that's about the equivalent of a BMI of 35, class 2 obesity. Um, again, 140% is a BMI of 40 in class 3 obesity. And that just helps us to track with the kids um, who we're seeing more in our clinic who are significantly above the growth chart. Um, so looking at growth charts, part of that is because, as we know, if kids get up into the higher BMI percentiles, it plateaus on the C2C growth charts, which go up to about 97th percentile. This is true in EPIC as well. 
The new growth charts that came out um, in 2002, they're from the CDC and it came out in this pediatrics article, allow us to better assess and to track um, kids above the 95th percentile. And this is nice even in terms of talking with kids. If we're seeing success, you're not just stuck up there on the, on the top in terms of BMI. This uh, figure shows the rise in prevalence of BMI over um, since the 70s and the 1970s to 80s. Um, data was held static for growth charts. That's how we can have more than 5% above the 95th percentile. So you can see a rise in all age groups with some leveling over the last couple of years, um, the exception being um, specific minority groups and also teens you can see are continuing to rise. And then the prevalence of severe obesity is rising. So you can see in red um, up to 6% of kids now with class 2 and 2% with class 3. This is a complex slide, but it is great. <laughs> I'm not going to go into it. Great for showing how multifactorial um, the contributors to energy balance are. So this is actually kind of nice with our older teens or with our, our adult patients. Just saying you know, there's a lot of factors. Some are intrinsic, some are extrinsic, some are modifiable, some aren't. Um, sort of creating that rapport and talking about what can we do, what is modifiable, and then, and then talking about sort of the obesogenic society that we live in? What are the factors that, you know, it makes it difficult for kids to make healthy, easy decisions and keep moving day to day? We know there are significant complications of childhood obesity, both um, as children and then leading to complications um, in adulthood, um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, and stroke. We are seeing children in our clinic as early as five with and I'm sure Amaris too, with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We're seeing prediabetes as early as 8, 9, and 10 and diabetes. So a lot of complications. This figure shows how um, childhood obesity tracks into adult obesity. So again, emphasizing the importance of early primary prevention. So in 10 to 15-year-olds, about 83% of kids with the 95th percentile. I don't know if I have a, do I have a pointer. Oh. Ah, 83% of kids in the 95th percentile will go on to have obesity at 25. And even down in sort of the younger kids, about half of kids, 3 to 6, will um, go on to have obesity. So tracking, again, starting early, as, as early as prenatally with good nutrition, early pregnancy um, counseling. And then finally, this slide just shows the um, association between BMI percentile and prevalence of cardiovascular risk. So just showing that as kids get up into those higher BMI percentiles, there's clustering of cardiovascular risk, so hypertension, um, dyslipidemia. And that really reflects the metabolic syndrome that we're seeing in, in um, children with severe obesity. So... What are the guidelines from the AAP? So there's a nice stepwise approach to assessment and management of pediatric obesity. And this is the flip chart that's now, it's in all of our primary care exam rooms. Um, and I'll, again, this is hard to read, but I'll focus in. It's a two-page um, assessment tool 
Um, front side is, is the algorithm for assessment, back is treatment. So I'm going to focus in on the top of this. So the first step, again, this is based on um, the 2007 expert panel recommendation, as well as new and promising evidence. So this came out from the Institute for Ch Healthy Childhood Weight in 2015. So sort of updating the evidence again and, and keeping in mind that consensus statements are not entirely evidence-based and they always tend to be a little bit behind current evidence. So again, this is sort of the standard of care. So the first step is assessing behaviors. So again, in primary care and in our clinic, first step is really just asking about lifestyle habits. So focusing, and we always focus first on not on weight, but what, what can we do to eat well, be active, and um, not spend all our time on video. So diet history, <laughs> simple diet recall. We usually start, Tara will start in our clinic with a full diet recall, but in primary care and when I'm doing this on my own, just a quick diet recall helps. What's for breakfast? What's for lunch, snacks, dinner, drinks? Are there sweetened beverages? Um, eating outside the home. Um, do we have breakfast? Do we have family meals? Media use, overall time, types of devices and patterns. Is there a television or other devices now in the bedroom? Are cell phones on all night long? Do they have a family media plan? And is there a lot of exposure to advertising? Because we know that is linked to um, some unhealthy eating patterns. And then acting, asking about daily activity, team sports, exercise, active play for younger kids, assessing sedentary time and sleep. So again, it may be, and again, I know we have the nice dart screeners in our primary care practices. A lot of these are already highlighted, so you can focus right in, because it does take time. Um, and if there's not enough time, it may be saying, can we have a discussion about this and seeing, and seeing patients back? Importantly, assessing readiness to change. So saying, you know, are you, would you like to talk a little bit more about this? Um, and then assessing sort of how confident they are maybe in making some changes. So we're going to go into that a little bit more. So the next is providing preventive counseling, which for pediatrics is the broad message is 5210. So a lot of 5210 materials out front. Um, five is five fruits and vegetables a day, more matters, two hours of, or less of screen time, one hour of being active, and no sweet drinks. And there's actually some updated media recommendations that I'll talk about. Um, so sort of a broad generalized message, the idea being that if we're talking about healthy habits across domains in schools and workplace and, and in um, our primary care offices that we're we're sending a general message of healthy eating, active living. This is based on sort of the best evidence we had in 2007. A lot of it continues to be consistent, and so it's not a perfect evidence-based message, but more a marker for all of those healthy eating, evidence-based behaviors that we're going to talk about. So in terms of beyond just the, the content of five fruits and vegetables, there's a lot more about diet that we talk about. So eating behaviors, having breakfast daily, family meals are important. So eating together, um, talking about the day, connecting. Um, meals tend to be more healthful if they're prepared at home and eaten as a family. We have a lot of kids who are eating on the go, kids who are eating at different times. So we do emphasize sort of trying to have at least one healthy meal a day. Avoiding food as a reward or a punishment either way, but making food sort of separate from behavior. Um, limiting eating out, so good links between fast food and um, an increased BMI. 
and limiting ener consumption of energy, energy dense. So the recommendations say energy dense foods, but really energy dense nutrient poor. So there's a lot of good energy dense foods like we had today eaten in balance that are part of a healthy diet. Um, but overall, really, you know, we're focusing on obesity risk factors, but flipping that on its head in primary care, really we'd love to just be promoting good, healthy eating and moving our bodies. Um, and so choosing a healthy balance plate, and there's more and more evidence now about eating at home, preparing meals, um, good evidence from the Premi-Med study that Mediterranean-type diet is healthy, that if we can eat good whole foods in moderation and establish those habits really early that we may get ahead of this curve along with, as we'll see, lots of other domains that we need to address. So building a healthy plate, evidence supports a diet's primarily plant-based. So the more plant-forward, we just came from a healthy eating conference in California and the new terminology is plant-forward or making your plate three-quarter plant because your protein can be plant. We know that eating lower on the food chain is healthier, it's lower impact on the environment, and um, easier on the budget. So healthy fats, carbohydrates, protein sources, and then really not drinking a lot of your calories. So my plate, everybody's probably seen my plate, is a nice sort of basic starter for talking to families. There's lots of resources now from my plate online, um, recipes, fun worksheets for kids. It doesn't actually tell you a lot when you look at my plate. It's fruits, grains, vegetables, and proteins, but like that could be a hamburger and french fries, theoretically. And so we kind of like the healthy eating plate from Harvard because it actually gives you a little bit of detail about what should be in each of those sections. And I'll go into those a little bit. So focus should really be on diet quality, so eating real good, healthy foods, um, limited, and then eating those in moderation. Maximizing fruit and vegetable intake, so filling half your plate with fruits and veggies. Different varieties have different nutrients. We always talk with kids about eating a rainbow, so picking different things. You've got to have something green. You've got to have something orange. Choosing healthy proteins, so shifting towards away from red meat, which we know is associated with greater cardiovascular risk, towards leaner meats, chicken, poultry, fish, nuts, beans. We talk a lot about trying beans. We give out a lot of recipes because, of course, I like to cook. Um, choosing less processed carbohydrates, so getting away from all the refined carbs and sugars that are in our diets. And this is confusing, so really working with families on labels in primary care, getting a nutritionist involved because you may not have time to do all of this. Um, avoiding high fructose corn syrup and really choosing whole grains. So again, we'll talk about small steps. If you said to a family, you've got to do all this at once, it's just not going to happen. So it's picking small things, setting goals, and seeing them back. Choosing healthy oils and fats, so olive oil, canola oil, polyunsaturated oils, avocados, nuts, and fish. Um, limiting saturated fat. So not all saturated fat is bad. There's some early evidence that, plant, that, that um, saturated fat associated with red meat may be a little bit less healthy than some of the others. We're just starting to learn that all fats aren't equal, even among saturated fats, and avoiding trans fats. Um, so again, we went through a whole era of low-fat diets, and really that just shifted us towards a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of sugars. Um, 
fats lead to satiety. Fats and balance are not bad for you. Um, you just have to watch the calories and balance your diet. Limiting sweet drinks, so choosing waters, teas, low-fat dairy in moderation. So getting away from the strawberry coladas and the vital waters and like you know, we all have something in our hands now. And so it's okay to have three meals a day, two snacks, drink your water, and then go out and do something. So we talk a lot about that. Tara, and who's our registered dietitian, you may not all know Tara, um, had in, her, in her room has wonderful pictures up, just sort of giving examples. Like it doesn't have to be complicated. You can have, so that was Mallory, her daughter's dinner one night with just fish and some, I think that's, quinoa, maybe, and um, sliced cucumbers. Um, lunch in the middle there, just sort of bento box, like just chop things up. So when it seems complicated for families, we'll say just chop it up and put it on the plate. Kids like it separate anyway, so they don't want it all mixed up like all the fancy things that we make at home. So um, in terms of media time, so that's sort of very rapid overview of diet. Lots of new evidence coming about out about healthy eating. Um, media recommendations changed last year with two new um, AAP policy statements. So now a little more complex instead of just, you know, two hours a day maximum, no TV for young kids. We really, in, in less than 18 months, want to avoid um, the use of media except for video chatting. So a lot of communication among families now through FaceTime and all of, all of those other new um, chatting mechanisms. 18 to 24, choosing high quality programming um, and using it with kids. So if you're introducing, use it with your kids, make it high quality. And two to five-year-olds, really limiting to an hour. Um, and then avoiding the violent, fast-paced, um, distracting content, so making it worthwhile. Turning it off before bed, turning it off um, when not in use, not having the devices on all the time, and um, one hour before bedtime, because we know that kids don't sleep as well if they've been on media or if they're on media while they're sleeping. Um, and then for six years and older, really creating a media plan. So up at the top there, you can see there's a new website from healthychildren.org. They've got a media use plan that's nice for creating a plan with families. And then just a message to industry that um, we really shouldn't be making apps for children less than 18 months until there's evidence. And that advertising and unhealthy messages on apps are not such a great plan because kids can't tell the difference between advertising and factual information. So, physical activity. So, younger children promoting active play, so getting kids moving. We know that kids aren't moving quite as much in school. You come home, you get on a device, you're just not going to move at all. So, making it, and for older kids, an hour a day, getting your heart rate up, sweating a little, making it fun, making it part of daily life. Um, if kids can establish these habits now, they've got them for a lifetime. Structure is good. We talk a lot about just sign them up for something. It can be Zumba. It doesn't have to be team sports. But if it becomes part of the plan, then it happens. If you're trying to motivate a 14-year-old who doesn't want to move to get on a treadmill for 30 minutes a day, it's just not going to happen. So it's got to be fun. So then the next step is just determining weight classification, which we talked about. And then if kids are over in the green healthy weight category, you know, normal well, child check, prevention, 5210, if they are over or if they're overweight without risk factors, if they're overweight or in have a BMI over the grade, greater than the 95th percentile, you want to do a little bit more targeted history, looking for risk factors and risk factors for obesity and um, 
also related comorbidities. So targeted history, without going into too much detail, looking at um, for parental obesity. So we know that kids are two, three times more likely to have obesity because it, if it runs in families. And again, we're learning lots more about genetics. So increased risk there. Siblings, extended family, has anyone had bariatric surgery? Looking for cardiovascular risk, um, in particular type 2 diabetes, um, familial hypercholesterolemia, um, and then perinatal factors, so prenatal nutrition, gestational diabetes, um, birth weight, SGA, LGA, breastfeeding, and then early adiposity rebound. So if kids are, are um, you have that normal dip in your growth chart, if they're jumping back up early, again, that's sort of an early flag. You might want to focus more on nutrition. Do a more detailed visit, see them back, and just, you know, keep an eye on it. It doesn't mean that, that we're in trouble, but it's... it's um, just a little red flag to do a little bit more. This without, again, going into all of these, we're recognizing more genetic and medical conditions. So there's some genetic syndromes associated with obesity. Prader-Willi, we have probably all heard about a number of other ones. Medical conditions, so we don't want to miss Cushing's. We don't want to miss hypothyroidism, though I, in 10 years, have had one case of hypothyroidism. Um, so rarely actually the cause, though we do do a lot of TSHs because families worry about it. Medications, in particular, um, the antipsychotic type medications, um, but there's a long list. Steroids as well. Um, and the final is obesity syndromes associated with early onset obesity. So this is something that we're just learning about. Um, again, this is where memorizing all these for the obesity boards actually helps, um, and all the pathways. We have three in particular, so leptin gene deficiency, leptin receptor gene deficiency, POMC, and melanocortin-4 receptor deficiency. And all of these are associated with early hyperphagia, so kids are just hungry all the time, rapid weight gain, and then a number of other symptoms that are specific to each. But growth charts can look like this, and these are ones you want to refer. We're working with our genetics team now on a protocol for um, screening. There are panels for screening for these genes. And across the country, people are trying to figure out what the best um, algorithm for this is. There's a study at MDH now looking at POMC and melanocortin-4. It's um, sponsored by a drug company. We're, trying to, we're learning how to target some of these pathways. And again, kids who have sort of early rapid weight gain. And again, not all of them with a growth chart like that is going to have a genetic issue, but I, you want to look a lot more closely if we have rapid early gain. Um, physical exam findings, again, looking both for underlying causes and complications related to um, excess weight. So acanthosis is what we see the most. Um, and again, a sign of early insulin resistance. Looking at things like hirsutism for polycystic ovarian syndrome, Papilledema and kids who have headaches. We have two or three children now with papilledema that uh, with um, pseudotumor that we follow, and then um, goiter again, looking for signs of hypothyroidism among many other things. And then assessing environment. So we spend a lot of time just sort of figuring out 
you know, where are kids living? Who are they living with? What does their day look like? Are they in two different households? Are there different eating patterns in different households? Do, you know, are parents working two jobs? Are, are finances is an issue? Are other people working to change health? Because that's really part of sort of figuring all this out and then meeting people where they are. Are they ready to change? Are they ready to change one thing to come back in two weeks, come back in four weeks? Um, and just start, and we really focus on just healthy eating, active living as a family rather than weight. We tend not to do a lot of weights, not a lot of discussion about weight and BMI, but more about how do we learn to eat well and be active as a family for a lifetime. In terms of finances, there's a new AAP hunger sign assessing food insecurity, which we're just adding to our intake survey. Um, within the tw past 12 months, we worried about, our f about whether our food would run out before we got money to buy more or that the food we bought just didn't last and we didn't have money to get more. And there, there is an ICD-9 code for this. And again, then helping families connect to resources, to WIC and um, food stamps, the Haven, lots of local resources we've got here. So then the second bottom part of this chart is um, lab assessment. So if you have a child who is healthy weight or overweight without risk factors, then you're going to just screen lipids. In healthy weight kids, that's a recommendation. That recommendation is screening for familial hyperlipidemia. And I'm not even getting into that. That's been a little bit controversial um, in primary care. So I'm not going there. And, um, but for kids who are overweight with risk factors, it's worth checking the lipids. If they have a, um, overweight with risk factors, or their BMI is over the 95th percentile, recommendation is for fasting lipids, fasting glucose, ALT, screening for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NASH, and AST. Vitamin D, we live in a cold, cold, dark climate, so that's optional. Um, we screen a lot. We screen a lot of kids for vitamin D. And then A1C is a great alternative, especially if you choose to do non-fasting lipids. So if we have families who are far away, or maybe we've ordered fasting labs and they haven't been done and we've got them in clinic, we get the non-fasting labs. If they're elevated, you can always screen with fasting labs. And it's interesting, there's no particular age guidelines above two using clinical judgment for these. Um, so signs and symptoms of any comorbidities, any other concerns, you might get additional labs, like a limited ultrasound, limited abdominal ultrasound if we're worried about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So this algorithm then guides us into, if we are in this um, overweight with risk factors or elevated BMI above 95th into the AAP stepwise approach for treatment. And again, this is aimed to promote most of primary prevention in primary care in our community, shifting care to where it really should happen, and then using sort of secondary tertiary care resources as needed for kids who are failing earlier stages and need that intensive weight management program. So overall, Addressing medical issues and comorbidities is the first step in treatment, so the medical piece, and then sensitively addressing weight and, and weight status and health habits. So again, like we said, asking permission. Can, can we take a look at the growth curve? Is this something you're worried about? Um, do, can we talk about diet today? Um, what are some of your concerns? So our screening intake asks about goals, asks about concerns, asks about a lot of these, what do families want to work on right up front so that we can sort of start that conversation? 
Um, and again, families may not be ready to talk about this, and then it may be seeing them back and moving towards that next step. Maybe they'll be ready next time. Or can we see you back in three months instead of a year and talk a little bit more about this? Partnering. So this is really using your motivational interviewing skills. So identifying what's going well. So, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing to be healthy at home? Um, what are some of the things that go, are going well? And then what are some of the challenges? Um, do you want to talk about those? And then celebrating success when, you know, cut down on sweet drinks or get moving a little bit. Referring when appropriate. So really referring if they, and we'll go through the stages, if if the current approach isn't working, but also if they have high medical complexity like the child, the early rapid weight gain, extreme obesity, and then like we said, no consistent success with earlier stages. So we'll go through the stages. So really the content and message is pretty consistent. It's what we talked about, the 5210, my plate, healthy lifestyle. But the intensity changes, so really starting at the lowest level. Like, can we get kids moving in the community? Can we work with schools? If they're in primary care, a lot of obesity prevention and management is in primary care in their medical home. And, and we'd love to keep everybody in their medical home, but we're happy to see kids who need us in a tertiary care clinic. Increasing family involvement. So we will, if it's, you know, we get a history that, Parents are working pretty well on healthy habits, but the grandparents are living with them. And, you know, the kids go upstairs, and that's where they're getting extra, so we'll, extra snacks. We'll say, bring grandma next time. And so we bring the whole family in. Increase self-monitoring, increase multidisciplinary support. So self-monitoring being, you know, your Fitbit, tracking on my fitness pal. So, again, as we move up in primary care, that may mean getting somebody to help because we recognize that, it's hard to do in primary care. So the first two stages, stage one and stage two, prevention plus is the first. Both of those occur in a primary care office. And it's really talking about, like we said, seeing patients back, setting goals. Instead of seeing them in a year, say, you know, can we see you in a month? Or I'm a little concerned about this trajectory. Let's just make sure we're on the right track. Um, again, behaviors that resonate with the family, but also which which the provider may think is important. Here it makes sense if we can, and this is where I think as a system we need to work on having more resources. Having a dietitian really, really helps, um, and we have some resources in primary care, but it would be nice to create new models like we have embedded mental health where we can have more dietitians and other um, people embedded in the clinic to help. Um, social workers, I know we have a lot of good care coordination within primary care. Um, and that certainly helps. Athletic trainers and PT. So we have some of our PT people who have reached out to us to help work with this. Positive behavior changes the goal regardless of change in BMI. And this is a shift in the guidelines. There were a lot more structured weight loss recommendations. And now we're recognizing, again, because we don't have super, super strong evidence about exactly what works, try not to do harm. And so working, especially in kids who the first step is always just to work on behavior change and keep BMI the same or maybe decrease velocity a little bit um, until we get up into sort of the greater than 95th and the greater than 99th percentile. We're working on um, preventing further weight gain. In this first stage, it's monthly follow-up visits tailored to patient and family, and then doing that really for three to six months. And then if that's not working, then moving to the next step. But having somebody in the clinic, like 
our champions over in primary care. So we've got a picture here of uh, Alicia, who has been great in stepping up and making sure we have all of our 5210 materials, keeping us all on board on 5210 in our clinic. But it helps to have somebody be the local champion. Stage two is still within the primary care office, but somebody with a little more expertise, a little more practice in motivational interviewing, um, has some nutrition training, or it could be partnering with a dietitian, um, maybe having PT involved. Here again, intensity increases, so seeing people back every two to four weeks as determined by family and team. Again, weight maintenance or decrease in BMI. Great resources now. These are in all of our exam rooms. There's the flip chart, which we have. We have 5210 posters. This book's out front, Pediatric Nutrition's super helpful. And this is a new guide from Sandy Hassink that talks about all of that behavioral change piece. Um, we just ordered the Picky Eater Project, and that is going to be an additional resource mm -hmm. for those kids who really, really struggle with trying new things. We've got online resources. Change Talk is um, a module on motivational interviewing and the new Institute for Healthy Weight. These are fantastic guidelines that came out from the Children's Hospital Association consensus statement on management of comorbidities. And we've been working with a lot of the regional practices, and these have been really helpful. We've gotten feedback when we send these. It's um, basic algorithms for PCOS, hypertension, lipid management, um, easy to follow, and can be done in the primary care office. So we often have a lot of kids referred to us for this evaluation, but we're happy to either consult, have a discussion, um, and these are nice resources that people can use. There's copies of that out front, too. So the next two stages are three and four. These, are, these take place in a weight management clinic with a multidisciplinary team. So again, every two to four weeks as determined by family and team. And this is really then moving towards actually actual visits with a dietitian, weekly to monthly, short-term diet and activity goals, tracking, much more structured. Um, and then finally, when you get to the tertiary care weight management clinic, these are primarily for kids above the 95th percentile or above the 99th percentile. This is where you start to consider medications and surgery. We've only really got one medication, which is Orlistat. And it's not always that well tolerated. Bariatric surgery, the closest center we have at this point is Boston, but we've re referred some kids down there. Problem is they have to do all the pre and post follow-up there, so it's really difficult for families to do that. Um, and the goal here now is a decrease in BMI. Weight loss parameters for younger kids is a pound a month, and for older kids, two pounds a week. Anything more rapid is a red flag. So we've had a couple of those. Red flag for underlying medical conditions or for disordered eating. And so um, we really keep an eye on growth charts, especially when our dietitians are seeing people back over time. We make sure we check in and see where kids are. So how do we operationalize this in CHAD? So we've got the CHAD Live and Healthy program. And this is our sort of regional obesity prevention and management network. So we have sort of a pyramid approach. At the top is the CHAD Pediatric Lipid Weight Management Center. And we're hopefully seeing the most complex kids, the tip of the iceberg. So that's the goal, the kids who need tertiary care and need that intensive resource. And then a lot of what happens, um, well, we'll go into CHAD Pediatric Lipid Weight Management Center, which is a mouthful we call ourselves 
live and healthy because nobody wants to go to the Chad Pediatric Lipid Weight Management Center. Um, so we live under the Children's Hospital. We are now also under the Weight and Wellness Center. Our culinary medicine program works with both, and I'll give a little update on that in the end. And we actually are being tracked through several um, registries now, so I'll talk about that. So our programs include the Live and Healthy Clinic, which is our intensive lifestyle program. So it's medical management, but it's also personalized nutrition and activity planning, behavioral supports to sustain healthy lifestyles. Um, so that includes every, so there's an initial um, consultation, and then they're seeing every, well, as frequently as we can get them in. Every week to month with our dietitian and health coach team, they see Dr. Hoffley or I every month. So we'll see them back in a month and then see them every, well, every one to three months. Again, some families travel a long way, and this is where the guidelines are the guidelines, and reality is partnering with families. We have a lipid clinic, which um, Dr. Hoffley runs, which is for familial hyperlipidemia, and um, coming soon, a type 2 diabetes clinic, which I think is ramping up in the south, and again, integrated with the Weight and Wellness Center. So the cornerstone really in primary care and in our clinic is helping families to eat well and be active. Motivational interviewing, again, key domain, so we already went over this. We have more time. So we have an hour for an initial consult, half an hour visits with our dietitian. These are resources that do help. There's good evidence that if you can put more time in, it makes a difference. So it's hard to do in primary care. Um, the key is to, in a busy well child check, is maybe identify a few things and then see kids back. Have somebody in your clinic who likes to do this and is willing to see kids back maybe shift the model a little bit and have some of our nursing do some of this. Our health coach have um, our, um, like Ellen I know has done some of this in the past. So shifting roles, thinking about how we can do this. Um, in the Lipid Center, we have a team approach. So we've got health coaches. We've got the culinary medicine piece. We are looking to bring on a behavioral psychologist. We have one for the adult program, not yet for PD. We have an RN who works with us on fitness. We have a registered dietitian and then our medical <laughs> providers. And then we work closely with all of our PD friends up on the sixth floor. So our goals are healthy lifestyle, healthy weight. Again, really a team approach, partnering core curriculum around nutrition, culinary exercise, and behavior. The goal for an intensive weight management program is actually 25 hours and six months, and we are not quite there until we get our exercise component in place, which we're working on. There's a few programs across the country that meet these criteria. So again, evidence is created mostly by clinical trials. So you recruit people, they come back, you incentivize them. Translating this into clinical settings is difficult, and I'll talk a little bit about our power registry later, but across the country, programs are trying to figure out how to best operationalize this. 25 hours in six months is about once a week, so it's pretty intensive. And there's good evidence for moderate or high intensity, which I think is like 50 to 70 hours. It's, it's like twice a week. So we have an initial consultation. We have three components. Mirrors the adult program, live smarter, move smarter, eat smarter. So again, focusing on those different components, behavior and movement. We do have a cooking with kids program, and I'll show you some slides. We had a class last night, and we did um, baked egg cups, and everyone made a salad and a vinaigrette, and then they got to rate how they liked all the things they tried. It was fun. 
Um, so the next stage is, is really in our infrastructure is the TAD primary care practices, and we have a number of those across the state, so um, a nice collaboration of, of primary care, um, and all of which have worked together since we started, I think, the Obesity Task Force in about 2008, and then um, we got some funding from Let's Go in Maine, which is a national child prevention pro childhood obesity prevention program promoting 5210 across multiple domains. And so um, Eric Schessler in Manchester and I were champions for New Hampshire for this, and this allowed us to work with practices and in fact, seven of our, our CHAD sites were Let's Go certified, which means accurately weighing and measuring patients, having a respectful conversation, and then connecting to the community. So a nice network that we'd like to continue to work with under the Live and Healthy program. We're working on hiring a Live and Healthy coordinator to help with this, help provide resources, help us work to think about new care models. Um, and then finally, connecting with community and state organizations like New Hampshire HEAL, New Hampshire Foundation for Healthy Communities, and our Health Prevention Resource Center here at Dartmouth. Again, multi-domain approach. What we do as clinicians is just one piece. And again, we're not going to change the trajectory of everybody's lives on our own. And so helping to provide evidence-based practice to all of these other domains, working with advocacy, public health, policy, getting rid of some of the non-real foods that are out there. Um, and one of the ways in which we're thinking about new models in our clinic and hopefully testing it there and translating it into the community and other settings is our culinary medicine program. So it'd be great to show and we're work, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about our collaborative. Across the country, programs are popping up in academic centers. Um, I know Tufts, I think it's Tufts, Duke, has a teaching kitchen now in their dining hall. A lot of medical centers have teaching kitchens. So people are starting to think about how can we shift back to learning about healthy eating and active living sort of in medical settings, but also in schools. So bringing back, you know, we used to have home ac. So how can we think about doing this sort of on more of a primary care prevention level? So we started the Chad Culinary, the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Culinary Medicine Program in part because in clinic, we struggled a lot with sort of trying to tell people how to eat well and, and to cook and like give out recipes, but really just wanted to go home and cook with them. And so why not? Let's do some cooking classes. So this is where we've started. The program recognized the power of healthful foods to impact wellness and that nutrition and cooking skills are really essential in improving health. Really, the program is hoping to bring together all of the resources that we have here at Dartmouth and connect with others across the country. Um, that are working on um, cooking. So this is our team. We've got also, we've got Dave as our chef down in the cafeteria. Deb Keen helped provide breakfast this morning, food and nutrition services. This was kind of a scary spot that we did on WMUR. <laughs> in three minutes, we, were, we, were, we had this whole thing planned. We had, I think, three minutes to cook a, a meal. This is cooking up at the co-op kitchen, and then this is Heather Wolf. You guys have probably seen her do her talk and taste nutrition outside of the cafeteria. So she is with our Live Well, Work Well. Um, curriculum development is the priority right now. So we have single technique-driven classes. We've got immersion classes, six classes in a row covering fruits and vegetables, whole grains. Um, 
we are focusing on patients, providers, medical students, and employees, and then working on collaborations with other institutes, institutions doing the same thing. Our Eat Smarter Culinary currently is only available to Weight and Wellness Center patients, and primarily because of funding, but we're hoping to make this more of a public program as part of the wellness part of Weight and Wellness. It's integrated medical nutrition and culinary, so it's myself, though I'm not really an MD, I'm the chef in this case, <laughs> a registered dietitian, and a health coach. So it's really like taking one of our intensive coaching visits, our RD visits, and moving them to a setting where it's just more fun, like the kids are more engaged, the patients love it, and we're doing the same thing. So could we translate this into an after-school program? Could we put this in community? Could we put this in primary care? I mean, this would be great to be able to refer patients. And you're getting a dietitian visit, but you're not just sitting there talking back and forth. You're making it fun. Um, so we have three different programs, Culinary Lifestyle, our intensive program, Eat Smarter Tonight, and Eat Smarter Kids. So Eat Smarter Culinary is the adult program. We have actually had three cohorts now go through the six-class module. Um, and again, that's Eat Smarter 101, whole grains, fruits and vegetables. Um, we do a bit on motivational interviewing. We do behavior change, integrating USDA nutrition principles. Eat Smarter Tonight are technique-driven classes, so making a stew, making a soup, um, basic cooking competencies, hopefully inspiring people to do more cooking at home. We had a little five-year-old last night, and he's like, I'm going home and cooking dinner for mom. <laughs> so he was so cute. Um, Eat Smarter Kids, so aiming to support children and families in improving diet choices, meal preparation, and planning basic cooking skills. We've got Lissa, it's so cute. Yeah. And... Um, Mallory, who's um, Tara's daughter, the, again, gave permission for use of their slides. USDA Nutrition Information Culinary Skills. Cook, Eat, Learn, which you guys experienced this morning. So every month before medical grand rounds on the first Friday, we provide this setup with a healthy breakfast, cooking demonstration, basic nutrition info, and there we do a weekly trivia about the topic we did the month before. And you can win a prize like a jar of granola or something fun. We are hoping to bring this to pediatrics, too, because it's a nice way to sort of model healthy behaviors, give providers a little bit of um, both recipes, comfort with talking about nutrition that we don't get in medical school. Um, really very little nutrition training in medical school. Pictures from Cookie Learn. Again, Dave making shashuka for us. And then we did our first Geisel Medical Student Elective this spring, four sessions. Again, very similar to our adult program, running through sort of the basic USDA recommendations. There, we sort of combined, we, it, this was both for their wellness, but also we talked about how we connected with patients around these issues. And we did a bunch of modules on motivational interviewing, because it's all stuff they've asked for. They've asked for a nutrition curriculum. It just went up to the Medical Education Committee. Um, and so we may have a future true nutrition curriculum, but potentially an ongoing elective. And then finally, last but not least, we are part of the um, Teaching Kitchen Collaborative, so 35 institutions and growing across the country, all of which have some sort of teaching kitchen or teaching program. We've got LA Kitchen that um, helps prisoners coming out of prison to um, gain vocational skills. We've got Google, we've got some of the big um, industry organizations 
who are teaching their employees to cook. Um, Stanford, UVM, and, and Maine General are both part of this. We've had a sort of smaller collaborative with the Vermont and Maine people, and I've met a couple times. The idea is to learn about what each other's doing, create standard assessment tools, standard curriculum, test it, get grant funding. We've already got grant funding for a research day. Um, so thinking about how we move this forward to promote health. So this is exciting and fun. Um, all fun, but does it work, in Sue's words. Um, weight and wellness clinical registry. We have both an adult and a pediatric registry. We're track, we have pre-post surveys. Um, well, surveys at zero month, three months, six months, nine months, assessing behavior, um, <coughs> along with standardized scales. We've got biometrics. We're pulling all that data and tracking it within both of our programs. Biorepositories in the works. The adult already has IRB approval, collecting blood, stool, and fat, um, storing genetics for future testing. We're letting the adults figure that out before we go to pediatrics on that. Um, intramural, extramural research, we put in a number of grants. We're working on one for culinary. Um, John Batsis got some synergy pilot funding to test the health coaching model through telehealth. And then the power registry is really cool. This is a national registry of weight management programs where we all send de-identified data to figure out what works best in different programs because we're still trying to figure this out. There's now about, I think, 30 sites in power, and we've recruited about 30 kids now, so trying to figure out how we compare to other programs and what works best. So, after talking very quickly, we have a little time for questions. So lean. <laughs> how do you counsel families about diet Because there are some adolescents that like water, but trying to get kids to drink water, I and I know that diet soda is not, <coughs> but I'm wondering how, how you talk about diet soda. Yeah, and that's a hard one. Kara's actually really good at that, but I do a fair amount of that too. So we do try, again, to use diet soda more as a bridge. So if we have kids who are drinking a ton of soda, it's hard to kick that sugar habit. You know, so to go sort of cold turkey from four sodas a day to just drinking water, it, it kind of takes practice to drink water and drink other things. So we will say okay to use it, but... We, we generally treat it like sweet drinks, so in moderation as a treat, recognizing that we don't really know the long-term benefits. There's some early studies showing that it may trigger some of the same pathways, so boosting up your insulin a little bit, making you then um, ready for what's coming next, so food, um, boosting your... your um, that whole leptin-ghrelin pathway, basically, without going into the details. Um, but it does a lot of the same things, I think, as high fructose corn syrup. So saying it's, you know, it's not all bad, but it's probably not um, the, the healthiest choice over a lifetime. And really learning, I mean, we really talk a lot about not always needing something in our hands. So having three meals, two snacks and then just going off and doing other things and drinking water for thirst. But that's a tough one, and we do, um, we do struggle with that one because a lot of kids, especially the teens, like diet sodas. And then my other question is, how is, oh. how is this all being reversed? <laughs> yes, good question. I mean, it's an epidemic. We all recognize it. Even I think insurance companies might be now starting to recognize it. They're going to pay for the results. 
Yeah, so that's, I think that's part of the premise of the Weight and Wellness Center is we have um, internal resources right now that are supporting some of the, again, like we have dietitians in CHED, so some of this is supported institutionally. Um, our visits are well reimbursed as consult visits and primary care visits for obesity are well reimbursed. It's the additional staff, so that sort of ACO type model, you know, wraparound care, thinking about the future that's not well reimbursed. We're hoping that by showing good outcomes and using this model, that then we can then we can negotiate for bundled care. We also are able to balance expenses a little bit within the Weight and Wellness Center because we've got the full spectrum program from bariatric surgery all the way through pediatrics. But again, it's a really good question. We don't have great models. And when we, when we talk with other programs, other weight management programs, instead of being um, developed based on guidelines, a lot of them are being developed based on what's reimbursable. So like if the psychiatric visits can are reimbursed, like everybody's doing what they can, and we don't have a great model yet for reimbursement. I think as more and more evidence comes down the road for efficacy, we're going to have better success in reimbursement, particularly for RD visits. So for right now, our RD visits are only reimbursed if they're um, medical dietitian visits. There's a name for them. Um, but therapy. medical nutrition therapy. Thank you. Um, and so a lot of our visits are not reimbursed. So we actually cover that within the clinic. So again, we've been under the Weight and Wellness Center since about January and are continuing to look at sort of that balance of um, cost. Not a good answer. I think Trisha was first. Um, so speaking of like the wraparound services, most kids that are at higher risk get at least one and maybe even up to three meals a day at school. What are you guys doing to teach the schools to provide better meals? Because there's huge disparities. Yeah. I feel like my kid goes to a school where they get these beautiful lunches that are better than anything I would send. And then I hear about other kids getting lunches that are still pretty much like what I was having back in the 80s that's, that's not meant for everything. Yeah. And again, that's, that is sort of a big, a, a controversial issue across the country. There are new USDA guidelines that are um, improving school lunches. Um, I personally am not working with the schools. I think that's part of that sort of wraparound. We all need to work on this at multiple levels. We will often talk with schools particularly um, around this particular child about diet and helping them within the schools. But totally agree. Kids get a lot of their meals there, especially with school lunch. And so advocating for better school lunches is critical and for movement in schools because that's where kids spend most of their time. But I agree. That's a good, that's a good thing to take on. <laughs> so we are, we, are, we are close to out of time. <clears throat> Keeping your advocacy hats on, you may have heard or seen in the news that the which administrator and the current administration is, is working, lobbying, and maybe successful in changing the requirements for school lunches from the Obama administration, scaling back on whole grains. Just turn that. Because after all, for the kids, it's not really just about health, but it's supposedly about palatability. And what, this is driven a lot by the school and the district's um, food managers and their budget and not being able to meet those considerations. So... Stay awake, everybody, and keep advocating, and, and thank you 